0: as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, teach us what we do not know. Show us what we do not yet see. Convict us of the sin that remains. Satisfy us with all that you are for us in Christ. And it's in his name and his righteousness alone that we pray this. Amen. Abraham Lincoln delivered a speech in June 1858 in which he addressed the divide in the country between slave states and free states. Now, he was not yet president at this point, but he could see the brewing storm It was between these two positions. In this speech, Lincoln famously quoted from the New Testament gospel saying, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now while Jesus was not referencing a nation when he originally said those words, it was a universal principle that applies to all people and therefore Lincoln applied it to the situation at hand. And the universal principle is this, that division where there should be unity results in disaster. Unity or division where there should be unity results in disaster. Think about it. This principle holds true for a military. If a fighting force is divided over objectives or tactics or ultimate allegiance, then they will lose the war against their enemy. This principle also holds true for businesses or corporations. If they are not unified on what they are there to do, then they will not set out, they will not be able to reach their end destination. And most importantly, and for our purposes today, this principle is true for any local church as well. When Christians turn on one another... They turn away from the mission that Christ gave them. Division in the church destroys as well. It destroys our witness to the gospel. It destroys our bond of love between us and our trust that we have. This reality, the threat of division, was true in the early church when it was founded in the first century, and it's still true today. In fact, unfortunately, church splits have become as common as church potlucks. You hear uh, all the time of churches that split over this reason or that reason. And division in the body, therefore, is just as much of a threat today as it was in the early decades of the church. Now, we've been blessed here at Foothill, and we praise God for the unity that he has He is fostered here at our church, and we do not take that lightly, and we give all praise to the Lord for what he has worked. But we must not presume that the church will just stay unified, that somehow it'll just continue to float down the river of unity. Unity must be fought for. It must be eagerly maintained, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Why? Why must we fight for unity? Well, it's because we're all sinful people. That even though the Spirit of God has transformed us in in tremendous ways, our, our sin nature still resides within us. And it's not until we die or are raptured to heaven that that sin will be totally eradicated from our lives. And this concern of the destructive nature of division was on the heart of the apostle when he penned the epistle to the Philippians. And so if you're not already there, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to Philippians. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Paul knew that this fledgling church in Philippi would be sidetracked and eventually sidelined if divisions and disagreements festered within this congregation. And so he made it a, a major point of his letter to address the unity that should exist within the church. After addressing some issues, he gets to the heart of his exhortation for the church in Philippi in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." His concern is that they would live lives worthy of the gospel and do that together in unity. And this emphasis on gospel alignment and gospel unity continues from chapter 127 all the way through into chapter 2, verse 18. And it's here in chapter 2 that we find ourselves this morning. He addresses the attitude and the demeanor that we need in order to be unified as a church. So this morning, I want to begin by reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we begin to look at this passage together, I want to draw your attention to verse 5. Verse 5 functions as a hinge verse in this whole paragraph. It concludes what came before in verses 1 through 4 and it introduces what's coming in verses 6 through 11. Now here in the English Standard Version it says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. I believe that the It better reads, uh, which was also in Christ Jesus, emphasizing that this is the mind, this is the attitude that existed in Christ and that we are to model. Now, as I said, this command here shapes this whole passage that we're looking at today, and that is to have the mind of Christ. What is this mind, though? Well, he describes it for us in verses 3 and 4. He's just said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the mindset that Paul has told the church to adopt, and now he's drawing our attention to the fact that it first existed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So think about what Paul's doing here. He's first zoomed in to the relationships within the church, and he's focusing on how they should treat one another. But then he, fixes the, he turns the camera and fixes his gaze upon Jesus Christ. It's, he's, he's helping us to look not just at ourselves and at one another, but to ultimately look to the ultimate reason for why we should treat one another with love and humility. It's because of Christ, the Savior and Lord of the church. In essence, he's saying, you need to strive to be of one mind. You need to be united together. Don't just look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. We must do this. Why? Because we're following him. And he points to Christ. And it's here where our gaze Likewise, must be fixed for the rest of the morning. We must behold our humble Savior and thus learn what it means to humble ourselves for the sake of others. In this passage this morning, we're gonna see four aspects of Christ's humility. Four aspects of Christ's humility so that we may marvel at and follow his perfect example. So that we might marvel at and follow his perfect example example. Now, it needs to be said here on the outset, as I mention his example, that what Jesus did, described in this passage, cannot be directly copied by us, right? This is the description of the ultimate saving sacrifice of Jesus Christ, giving himself for the sake of sinners, and we uh, do not, are, are not called to mimic that saving event, nor could we, even if we wanted to try. But, Paul expects us to look upon this great example of Christ and to be able to draw something from it that we can indeed follow in our own lives. So let's look first at the first aspect of Christ's humility, and that is his humble attitude, his humble attitude in verse 6. He says, who, referencing Christ Jesus in the verse before, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now before we dive into these verses directly, I want to address these verses as a whole. It's been said that these are the most difficult verses in Philippians to interpret, and yet it is the most important passage in Philippians to interpret. And so it provides really the, 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 the cornerstone for what he says throughout this book. Now, some have mentioned and, and seen that these verses seem to maybe compose an early Christian hymn, maybe a, a bit of poetry here that, that uh, Paul is either adopting or is writing for the church to be able to sing and, and sing of the glories of Christ. And while there is some poetic nature to this, and and maybe even your translation pulls it out to make it look more poetic than the rest of the prose that surrounds it, I think there's something else going on here. And I'm indebted to commentator Joseph Hellerman for his insights into the background of the Greco-Roman culture to help us understand a little bit of what Paul is doing here. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, the elites... And the leaders of the society of that day would record their honors and their praises in what was called an encomium, an encomium, which meant simply a speech of praise. So they wanted to document all the things, all the reasons for why they should receive praise. An encomium typically extolled its subjects' divine origins, it's his deeds or acts, his service upon the earth, and his fame, and any titles that had been bestowed upon him. This passage seems to follow in this line and be Paul's encomium to Christ. But the way that Paul does it would have directly subverted the expectations of a Roman colonial audience such as the Philippians. You see, the elites in Rome competed with one another to ascend what was known as the honors race. They were trying to get to the top. They were trying to be the one with the most honors. You could kind of think of it as the most letters after his name, the one that would receive the most praise. And this was them climbing up the social ladder. The titles that they accumulated along the way were in turn publicly proclaimed in order of their importance. They were proclaimed often by being inscribed. And in fact, we have examples of these from antiquity. They were inscribed either by the grateful recipients of those who have received good from the elites and from the aristocrats or from the aristocrat himself who was seeking to document for all of time the important titles and the things that they have done this honors race was repeated throughout the empire. You can imagine that as the leaders were striving to do this, so everybody else down through society were seeking to find their own ways to to attain honor and to document that. If the leaders were seeking to heap titles and praise, then everyone else following those leaders would seek to keep honors and praise in their own way, and it filtered down into uh, the offices and the smaller confines of the towns and municipalities throughout the empire. And still further down, the pecking order, non-elites mimicked their social betters by adopting a race of honors in their various trade associations and even religious groups. It was all through Roman society. And it's important to know that this This race, honors race ideology was particularly central to the cultural values and social codes of Philippi, since the settlement had been established as a Roman colony in 42 BC and then again under Augustus in 30 BC. And as I mentioned, the honors of an encomium were listed in ascending order, going from the least impressive to the most impressive, Reaching the pinnacle of achievement by the end. And of course, this is not all that different in our day, right? We can, we can understand those who want to stack up the great uh, resume that they have, the things that they've done. Uh, we uh, practice this even into college admissions, right? We want to uh, stack all the good things that we've done in our high school years so that we get accepted into college and it just continues on into the business world and everywhere else we want to stack up all the things that we've done. And once we, uh, people that run for office list it all on their website, we love to tout our own praise. But as we come to this passage in Philippians, and we see Paul's encomium to Christ, he inverts the normal direction of this honors race. He portrays Jesus descending through stages of what we would even called, rather than an honors race, an ignominies race, a seeking to go lower and lower. Instead of using his social capital to gain more honors and public recognition, Christ leverages his status in the service of others. Such a utilization of power, indeed a voluntary relinquishing of rank and prestige, would have struck the Roman elites as. Abject folly. In fact, Roman Senator Pliny said, It is more ugliifying, that's a good word, huh? It's more ugliifying to lose than never to get praise. Christ not only lost, but he gave it all up willingly. And this is exactly what God the Father celebrates by exalting Christ. Therefore, this whole scene paints a strikingly radically different approach from what dominated the culture in Philippi. And it's this way of life that Paul exhorts the Philippian Christians to adopt. And so with this as background, let's look how Paul writes this encomium to Christ. He begins by recounting the humility of Christ by going back to where he came before he took on Christ. Human flesh. And in this we see Christ's humble attitude. Let's begin by saying first, who though he was in the form of God, Paul writes. This form of God is not a statement that seems, is just saying that Christ was in the outline of God or that he was merely in a, an appearance of God but wasn't truly God. This word means uh, the actual substance and the very nature of the thing. So therefore, it's saying, Paul is saying here that Jesus was in the form of God. He had the very nature of God. He had the very substance of God. The inner reality, the very essence is what Jesus possessed. The verb here that is translated existed or was is not the normal word for being, but it stresses the essence of a person that's unchangeable. He was, he existed in the form of God. Therefore, as Paul begins this description of Christ, he starts at the highest place where Christ is full deity. He expresses that that Jesus possessed the same nature as God. This Godhood was his from eternity past, originally and natively. This is not a form or a nature that was given to him or that was added to him some way along the way. This was part of who he was from the very beginning. He forever existed unchangeably as God. Now this phrase alone, we've only got one phrase in, and this phrase alone attacks the claims of cults like Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus is not fully God. But Paul emphatically claims otherwise in a simple phrase, who was, he was in the form of God. But Paul goes on. He says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This phrase, equality with God, it expresses the dignity of his position. He holds the same rights, the same privileges, the same honors that are due to God. Because, as we just said, he possessed the same nature as God, so therefore it would would be natural to conclude that he then possesses the same stature, the same position, the same privileges and praise as God. Whereas the first phrase dealt with his essential nature, this phrase deals with his exalted position as being equal with God. But this equality, this, this equalness with God, it says that was something that he did not count to be grasped, a thing to be grasped. Now, this is one word in the Greek, and it means broadly something to which one can claim or assert by gripping or grasping. And I believe believe that it best describes the fact that even though Jesus, in his pre-incarnate state, had the position and the privilege of being equal with God, he did not assert or hang on to that privilege. He was willing to let go of all the privileges and benefits of his equality with God in heaven and come to earth on behalf of his people. It is here that we see the humble attitude of Jesus Christ. He relinquishes, he lets go of all those that he could claim and he could hold on to. And enjoy those in the, the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. But he didn't see it as a thing to grasp onto and to hold on to. Jesus Christ was willing to let those go. He willingly gave up the glories of heaven for us. He humbly, selflessly, selflessly did not use his title, his privilege, or his rights to his own advantage but instead relinquish them to bless us. And so as we see this humble attitude of Christ, we must marvel at this one who is Christ, this one who was full deity from before time began for all of eternity. He has been truly God. And yet the one who was truly God had an attitude of humility, a, a humility that defies the imagination. He would, we, if we were in the same position, we would want to hang on to that privilege. We would want to hang on to that position with all our might. We don't want to be degraded. We wouldn't want to be humiliated. We want to keep all that we have. But that's because we don't have the love and the generosity of Christ. He willingly let go in order to serve. And I think as we look to us then, as we seek to have this mind in ourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, we need to consider what are the titles or the positions that keep us from serving humbly? What are the things that we are grasping onto and keeping us from stepping in and serving those around us? It could be that those who have high social status in our world today. Could be CEOs, politicians, or people at the top of their field taking pride in their position, taking pride in their titles, that to serve others would be below their station. And unfortunately, these kind of attitudes can even creep into the church. And yet... If we are to have the same mind as Christ, then we come into the church as Christ followers that we relinquish all of those titles, all of the privileges that we think come with our position or with our station in this this world and we come to serve. We let go of those things that we think we deserve. We must see ourselves first and foremost as a sinner saved by grace that we all are on a level playing field before the cross. This This is a truth that also aptly applies to church leaders, those who are seeking to gain titles and positions within the church and hold those positions and titles with pride and think that serving in certain places are below them. Friends, if we are to follow and have the same mind as Christ, There is no place for such thinking within the church. All of us are sheep of the great shepherd. All of us are sinners saved by grace. And all of us are called to serve one another. I think this can also apply to parents. Parents, there are some times that that we as adults who are handling important things in our lives and we have lots going on and we're busy and all these things that that we don't want to stop, set that stuff aside and stoop to the level of our children and serve them. They're more a nuisance. And yet, if we're to have the mind of Christ, our title and position as an adult handling important things should not keep us from serving our children on even the lowest level. And there's probably many other ways that we need to think about Where are the titles and positions that we hold on to that keeps us from serving as Christ calls us to? So first here, we've seen the humble attitude of Christ. Secondly, we see his humble condescension. His humble condescension in verse seven. It says, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Notice, first of all, that here he transitions from a, a, a position, an expression of attitude, to now action. This one Jesus, before we, we heard about attitude, now we see him acting, not just an expression of being. Notice also that this action is voluntary. The actions that proceed in verses 7 and 8 are Are voluntary. Notice the repetition of the word himself. Himself. He emptied himself. And then verse 8, he humbled himself. These are emphatically placed within the text so that we would see that Jesus was not forced into these actions. These are things that he underwent himself. Now, this first action, he emptied himself has stirred up no small amount of confusion and error in the century since it was written. Some have proposed that when it says that Christ emptied himself, that he emptied himself of deity. Some will say he emptied himself of all of his deity. Some will will explain it as he just emptied himself of some of the attributes of deity. Deity. And today this teaching is particularly pervasive among those who preach the prosperity gospel and that we can perform signs and wonders in an effort to say that we can do the same things as Christ because we have the same spirit, which is true we do have the same spirit that indwelt Jesus, but they use this passage to say that Jesus was stripped of his deity while on earth and therefore were on the same playing field as Jesus because we have the same spirit so we should be able to do the same things Jesus did. That is a wrong teaching of this text. This passage doesn't come close to saying that and in fact it's a a teaching that has been denounced as heretical through the centuries because it degrades our Savior. It's unbiblical and it makes a different Jesus. We're now not talking about the same Jesus. And therefore, it's really a different religion. The Greek word here, uh, emptied himself. It means to make empty, to make void, or bring to nothing. In other words, this is another way to describe the humiliation of Jesus. He made himself nothing. He made himself of no reputation, as some translations put it. This same Greek word is used over in Romans chapter 4. I invite you to turn over there. Romans chapter 4. I think it's helpful to see how it's translated here in Romans 4 and to see the Breath of its meaning. Romans 4, verse 14. Here he's, I'll pick up in verse 13 just for, get a running start. Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. Now, where it says faith is null or voided as some translations have it, that word is the same word that we have in Philippians chapter 2. So the idea of voiding and making nothing, eliminating, is the idea. Well, to say that Jesus voided himself doesn't mean that he went, poof, out of existence, obviously. So it seems that it's describing this making himself nothing of, of no reputation. In fact, the theologian, of the prior generation, John Murray, said this. He said, the thought is simply that Christ Jesus... Did not make his own self the all absorbing and exclusive object of interest, concern, and attention. He became absorbed in concern for others. Jesus made himself nothing for the sake of others. In this humiliation, in this voiding, making himself nothing, he did not lose any of the form that he had previously possessed. In other words, because he he existed in the form of God, he didn't lose that when he emptied himself. In fact, if you take away any attribute of God from Jesus, he fails to be truly God. For a God who is not all powerful is not God, or a God who is not all knowing is not God. You can't just pick and choose a certain characteristic, remove it from Jesus, and think that Jesus stays completely God. The God thing is a package deal. It all goes together. All the attributes are connected to to themselves. So here again, Paul is driving home the point that Jesus humbled himself in the most amazing and dramatic way. He was in a race to the bottom. He made himself nothing. But we get further explanation of what this phrase means by the next two phrases. And it's a emptying by adding. He makes himself nothing by adding something to him. He says, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. How did Jesus void himself? How did he make himself of no reputation? Well, he Took on the form of one of his creatures. He made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. Here again is that same word, form, that we saw in the verse prior, meaning the inner substance, the very nature of a servant. Jesus didn't just look like a servant, he was a servant. The word here for servant is doulos, which most basically means slave. And if you were here last week, you, we heard a lot about slavery and what a slave was. Now, we know from the gospel records that Jesus wasn't actually enslaved to a physical human master while he walked on this earth. So this isn't saying that he came and was actually in physical bondage while he was on earth. He wasn't forced into labor. But Jesus took the position of a slave when he took on human flesh. How did he do this? Well he says in Mark 10, 45, right? That he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many he did not place any claim upon his life his time or possessions he surrendered it all everything about him was in service to the mission the father had given him to redeem a people for himself he came to serve and therefore he was a voluntary slave he willingly came to carry out the will of his father and to pour out his life for his people And as we heard last week, slaves were all over the Roman Empire. Pastor David quoted the the statistic that that slaves made up almost one-third of the population in the cities in the empire. Slaves were considered the lowest of the low in Roman society. They held the lowest legal rank. Therefore, when Paul says that Christ took on the form of a servant, he is saying something shocking to the status conscious Philippians. Jesus voluntarily went from the highest rank in the universe to the lowest rank. This was the greatest emotion in the history of the universe. This kind of lowering of rank would have been as shameful and despised by the sophisticated Romans. They would have been repulsed by it. This reminds me of the phrase in Isaiah 53 that says that the suffering servant would be despised and rejected by men. To be in this position of service is distasteful by the world, and yet it was the path that he chose to take willingly on our behalf. But Paul goes on, he says, being born in the likeness of men. Paul says that Jesus lowered himself in rank, took on the form of a slave, and was born in the likeness of men. This echoes the phrase in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that says that Jesus was born of a woman. And the account of the Gospels, for example, Luke 2, that says that Jesus was born of Mary. He Was made. He came as a full human. But it was a full humanity, a true humanity, that did not bring along with it the corruption of human nature, of human sin. And that is why in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, he looked just like every one of us. He was a human being through and through, and yet he did not have the sin that you and I have. And so here, Paul underscores the true and complete humanity of Jesus. It's important to realize that Jesus was not just God in a body, and if, as if there was some empty, like God's or a human suit that God could come, get, go in and fill and suddenly walk around, and the internal was God and the external was human. No, the Word was made flesh. How did that all work? How do you have 100% human and 100% God merged together in one person? That, my friends, is the mystery of the Incarnation. That is the mystery of the person of Christ. We can only affirm what the scriptures say and, and in there then we touch upon mystery and we have to be in awe and marvel at all that that meant. To fully parse it out is impossible. We simply must marvel and worship that the great God of the universe, the one who created everything that we see, who created each one of us, and was able to stay in heaven and receive the glory and accolades for all that he has done, did not consider that a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of you and me. Therefore, he could identify with us. Therefore, he could truly stand in as our Savior Redeemer. History fails to produce anyone who comes close to this level of condescension. No one has traveled so far in terms of status and rights for the purpose of serving people so undeserving, coming, taking on the form of one of his creatures who has rebelled against him. Even the great accounts of people returning to their torturers or captors to share the gospel and to bless them pale in comparison To what Christ did. And so, as we reflect upon the example of Christ, how does this mind be in us as well? I think we need to see that the attitude of humility can't simply stay an attitude. The attitude of humility must result in actions of humility. We can't just say that we're humble, we can't just think that we're humble. It's got to translate out into our words and our actions. In fact, it's the actions that prove the attitude. It's the actions that prove that we have the right attitude. We will show that we are humble in attitude by serving others. If we aren't serving, how can we say that we actually put others before ourselves in our minds? If we're not living out how we think. If we aren't spending time spending emotion, spending effort, spending or or money on others, then we are essentially showing our hearts are still in love with ourselves. We can't just have a disposition of humility and yet continue to live selfishly for ourselves. It would prove that we don't really have a disposition of humility, that we haven't truly adopted the mind of Christ and that pride still has a hold. Our pride shows often not only in loud boasts but in quiet choices that we make every day. Our pride shows not only in loud boasts but often in quiet choices that we make every day. So we've seen Christ's humble attitude. We've seen his humble condescension as he came to take on human flesh. Thirdly, let's see his humble obedience. His humble obedience, the third aspect of his humility. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Being found in human form, in one sense, just repeats what he has just said at the end of verse 7, that he was born in the likeness of men. But verse 7 emphasized Christ's human nature, and verse 8 emphasized how he appeared to others. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself. This word humbled means to cause someone to lose prestige or status. It could be rendered humiliate. That he humiliated himself. Again, if we're talking about lowering of status, if we're talking about a demotion throughout this passage, humiliation, I think, fits well. That Jesus intentionally humiliated himself, placing him before the mocking scorn of the world for the mission that he was to accomplish. This is the unthinkable continuing to take place how could one so great how one who one who deserves so much go so far but he does this great exalted one is taking further steps down the ladder of shame and debasement he's doing the opposite of what every human would want to do naturally Where is he going in his humiliation? He's going to death. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Now this passage, this text doesn't say who he became obedient to, but it's clear from the rest of scripture that Jesus was obedient to the will of his father. John 6, verse 36. For I have come down from heaven... Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This was the refrain of Jesus' life. He came to do his father's will happily. He would have it no other way. We hear this obedience in the prayer that Jesus prayed in the garden the night before he was crucified. He's there sweating great drops of blood as he prays, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours alone. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now it's important to state that Jesus did not become obedient for the first time when he went to the cross. This is not saying that the one and only time Jesus was obedient was when he went to death on the cross. He was obedient all through his life, But what Paul is emphasizing here is the kind and the extent of Christ's obedience. What kind of death did he die and how far did he go? Well, it was to the point of death, even death on a cross. Never before had the Son of God been asked to obey the Father to the point of death. This was the first and only time. Never before had he obeyed to the point of incurring such suffering and pain and shame. And we need to realize here again, we're talking about this debasement through this passage, and we need to put ourselves into the first century thinking. Because we're 2,000 years removed from this world, we have crosses everywhere. You've got them on Bible covers, we put them on t shirts, we put them in windows, we put crosses everywhere. And rightly so, there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to think about what the cross meant to the original audience and to the world that this gospel was preached. The cross was shameful. The cross was intended not only to give the accused the most painful, agonizing death possible, but also the most shameful and demeaning. One commentator said, no experience was more loathsomely degrading. No experience was more loathsomely degrading. The cross in the Roman world was reserved for slaves and for criminals. It even became known as the slave's punishment was an official title used. It was despised by the Romans and it wasn't permitted for a Roman citizen to even be hung on one. In fact, we have a quote from Cicero from those ancient times in which he said, let the very name of the cross be far away not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his ears, and his eyes. The cross isn't even to be seen, heard, talked about, thought about because it's so shameful. Therefore, this truly marked the very bottom the very bottom of the race of ignominies that Christ was running. This is the lowest of the low. In the eyes of the Philippians, in light of their status-conscious culture, they realize there is nowhere else for Christ to go. He has adopted the most shameful position. Paul presents Christ as a crucified Servant, a crucified slave thus emphasizing the depths that Christ went in his humiliation and therefore in light of this shame we can understand Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 where Paul says we preach Christ crucified is that praised by the Gentiles? no it's folly to the Gentiles it's, it's laughable it's get out of here are you kidding me? Your Savior was one who was crucified? That's ridiculous. Get out of here. I don't even even understand that. I have no category for that. I wouldn't even want to think about that, much less be identified with it. And yet, it was this shameful death that was necessary to accomplish our redemption. You see, Christ had to humble himself this far because this is where we were. This is where we are in our sin and our shame. The Bible tells us that none of us are righteous. That all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And we have the wrath of God hanging over us in our unredeemed state. This is a wrath that none of us can escape on our own. But the beautiful news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ descended from heaven, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient to his father to the point of death in order to stand in our place, to receive the wrath of God on our behalf. If we repent of our sin and put our faith in him, we receive eternal life. We receive the new life given by the spirit and we escape the wrath that we once deserved. If you're here today and you are still living in your sin, that you've never repented of your sin, confessing your sin to God, turning away from it and turning to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, I invite you to do that today before you leave. Right where you're at, in your seat, cry out to God that he would save you. That you would see your sin for all that it is and that you would see Christ's sacrifice in your place. That you needed Jesus to die upon the cross for your sin because it was that ugly and that shameful. It's only through that repentance that you will find life. And so we who have believed and trusted in Christ, we marvel at all that Jesus did for us. We marvel at the salvation that was purchased on our behalf finally this morning we see his humble exaltation Christ took on a humble attitude humble condescension humble obedience and just when you think it couldn't be more surprising it does this one who heaped all of the shame upon him it says verse 9 therefore Therefore, connecting it directly to what Jesus just did, because he died that death, God highly, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This completes Paul's great Christological account. The encomium goes down, but then it ends at the highest note possible. Normally, they go from lowest to highest, and this one just ends at the very top note after taking the surprising turn down. This exaltation was an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, 5, where he asked that he could share again with the glory that he had with the Father before creation. God is showering his son with blessings so that all would know the love that he has for his son. He has accepted his son's sacrifice. In between verses eight and nine, we have the resurrection. We have the the ascension of Jesus as he goes up to heaven. And then we have this exaltation of Christ by the Father. This name above every name, I believe is describing that The Father is giving to Jesus a reputation far above all. It's speaking of the preeminence of Jesus. That there is not any name below his. He gave the Son the praise and the accolades that far exceed all others. No one else holds a higher place or is deserving of greater commendation. And so, because that is the case, verse 10 so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here, Paul borrows from Isaiah 45, verse 23, showing that the praise that is stated to go to Yahweh, the, the Lord of the Old Testament, will ultimately be given to Jesus Christ, thus again showing the deity of Jesus that he is on par with Yahweh. This verse references a future day when all intelligent beings, both angels, fallen and unfallen, humans, redeemed and unredeemed, dead or alive, will bow the knee to Jesus and confess that he is Lord, showing reverence to him. Now it's important to say that this does not mean that one day everyone will be saved. This verse is not teaching universal salvation. Rather, it's saying that all will be forced to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ. That those in hell who are still being punished for their sins will be forced to recognize who is the one who is punishing them. This lordship of Christ will be recognized by all of creation like a defeated army that must acknowledge the conquering king is stronger than they are, so all of creation will recognize that Jesus is Lord. This is the most basic confession, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day, every tongue will confess it. But finally, we see that this, all of this glory, all this praise that's going to Jesus doesn't end there. Paul puts this beautiful little phrase at the end, to the glory of God the Father. It's all going back to God. God is exalting his son, showing him off so that he receives all the praise and acclaim and worship and praise and, and yet all of that praise, all of that goes on, and every tongue confesses, and every knee bows. And yet who gets the ultimate glory from that? The Father does. There's no competition within the Trinity, friends. They all fill their role, and they all receive glory. And it's a beautiful dance as they point to one another, seeking to glorify one another. We see here the beautiful inner working of the Trinity. And so we finish this passage marveling at the greatness of Jesus, that he is the conquering king, that he is the one that has defeated death and Satan, and one day he will completely crush all of his enemies. He will have the final say. There are none that can escape him. And so we bow today in humble adoration and humble confession that he is Lord. We either bow the knee now and confess Jesus as Lord in this life or we'll be forced to do it in the next. And so friends, may we seek the glory of Jesus. May we seek to see him highly exalted in our lives and in our hearts. May we seek the glory of God in all of our service. Again, we're taking on the mindset of Christ. We're not looking for glory in this life. We're not looking for praise in this life. We do our job. We humble ourselves. We seek to serve one another. We pour out our lives for others, knowing that ultimately our reward will come later. We aren't trying to get praise and accolades now. We are waiting to see that given by our Lord later. So we've spent this morning gazing upon Jesus Christ. We've seen his humility in multiple ways. But we will not have the mind of Christ. We will not adopt the same attitude if we are not gazing upon him. And I pray that we as a body never take our eye off of Christ. That we continue to look upon him gaze upon him, meditate upon him, to not have the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, be old hat, be familiar territory that we throw away and go, oh yeah, I know that stuff. But may we plunge deeper and deeper into the mystery of Christ and what he did on our behalf. May we go home reflecting and thinking upon all that Christ did. I think of no better summary of this passage than what we sang earlier this morning. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a savior. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are brought low in this passage. We stand back and are amazed at what Jesus did to save us, to redeem us. Father, would you forgive us for our pride? Would you forgive us for the times that we want to use our own positions in order to serve ourselves? Father, we want this truth, this attitude this mind of christ to be ours but we need you to work it in us we can't simply flip a switch and download the new software and just have the mind of christ we need radical transformation a turning of our hearts away from ourselves towards you and towards your people would you do this in us because we don't want to see any praise come to us for our humility Father, we want you to receive the glory. And so, would you change us for your name's sake? Amen. Go this week thinking upon Christ, and may the Lord transform us as we do. You're dismissed.